Welcome back to part D of my commentary to Parashat Acharimot. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman, and this should be the concluding audio um, section to this commentary today. I apologize for the length. It's uh, easily um, an hour and a half, almost two hours in length, four sections. The written notes are 19 pages long, so we're going to pick up our study on the bottom of page 14 with a section entitled, Do the Torah. Now, moving on into chapter 18, we find a second chair passage. Our first chair passage was Leviticus 17.11. Our second chair passage is this, quote, You are to observe my laws and rulings. If a person does them, he will have life through them. I am Adonai. Leviticus 18, verse 5. Now, um, before I get going into uh, my commentary, let me just tell you that about a few years ago, um, I had the unique opportunity of engaging in a lengthy debate with a non-Messianic rabbi over the important implications behind the single verse. And uh, the debate was not in, 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 uh, in person. It was actually via e- email. And so because it was, I was able to keep my notes and keep his responses. Now, I've decided to share a selected portion with you here in this commentary. Um, but let me, let me preface it with a word of caution. My apologetics, my scriptural defensive reasoning, they were aimed at the gross error that exists within the scholarship of the Jewish learned. Okay, My comments were intended, that is to say, to expose that error in an effort to showcase the truth of the Torah to a man whose eyes were blinded by defensive, not passive, unbelief. Okay, This, this, this rabbi who I was discussing with was not seeking to understand the truth, he had already formed his opinion about the truth and decided that the messianic position was wrong, therefore he was already defensive, and therefore my uh, replies are meant to to be couched within that uh, tone. So, um, he, he also had ill feelings towards the Christian community, of which he believes is in serious disobedience to the Torah of the very God that they claim to serve. So he had, um, he he was he was already in a position where he was lashing out. And so my comments, I'm, I want you to know, should not be understood as being applied to the Jewish people as a whole. All right, I'm not singling out any particular Christian group either. Rather, um, I, I'm speaking to this man. And truth cuts to the heart of the issue for those who walk in disobedience. In other words, if you find yourself in the position that this man was in, well then what I'm, what I'm about to say in my commentary might offend you. All right, To use modern vernacular, if the shoe fits, then wear it. But I'm not trying to single out any person um, other than that person that I wrote the commentary to. So, all right? um, also, since it was done during email, um, I don't have permission to post any of his comments. So you're just going to have to see what I wrote. It's kind of like what Paul's letters are like. We see Paul's writings, but we don't see the responses. So that's kind of what's going to happen here. I had to kind of um, contextualize. You're going to see what I wrote, but you're not going to see what he wrote back. All right. Um, what I did during my response to him is I mixed my own comments with those of noted author and translator David H. Stern as found in his Jewish New Testament commentary. So what you're going to hear is my words and Stern's words mixed together, um, moving in and out of one another. I wasn't trying to plagiarize David Stern. What I was trying to do was um, understand, or get this, uh, this rabbi to understand that the position that I was speaking of was not my own position. I was quoting from David Stern in an effort to show that the position being held by many Messianics is also um, championed by someone the likes of David Stern, someone with higher degrees than I have. At any rate, let's see if we can read through this, all right? Here we go. These, these are all my words, all right? Well, my response using 
some material drawn in. In other words, when I'm speaking, I may make may cite a reference, but it's still my own response. Okay, here we go. Moshe spoke of the righteousness that is... Well, let me pause and say that we're launching from the verse in Leviticus 18, verse 5. All right, here we go. Moshe spoke of the righteousness that is grounded in trust in Vaikra 18, verse 5. Quote, that the person who does these things will attain life through them, end quote. Rashi, quoting the Sifra, comments, quote, It refers to the world to come, for if you say it refers to this world, doesn't everyone die sooner or later? End quote. I understand the Torah then to be hinting about eternal life, although the Peshat is surely teaching Israel that the covenant member will live his life according to the Torah instead of seeking to become a covenant member by keeping a set of laws, something the teach teachers of Israel never taught outright in the first place, yet not uncommon among the superstitious. That many Christians don't believe that the Torah teaches eternal life through their teachings of the mitzvot is irrelevant. If they have made a serious error in their theology, they, the Christians, must answer to Hashem for misunderstanding His Torah. Why do we become so caught up in the middle over false teaching? Is it because of the fence that we've built around Torah that we defend it so fervently? In any case, they are wrong about Torah, they Christians. It is to be kept, not disregarded. It is the goal of the Torah to lead its followers to the righteousness grounded in trust. But have you ever stopped to think that they, the Christians, the Menim, the sectarians, may have understood a central part that our people, the Jewish people, miss? The lesson in logic goes like this, all right? The person who practices the righteousness grounded in the Torah will necessarily have the trust in Yeshua that the Messiah... I'm sorry, let me try that again. The person who practices the righteousness grounded in the Torah okay, will necessarily have the trust in Yeshua, will have the trust in Yeshua, the Messiah, that... Um, I, I think the sentence is wrong. Let me read that again. The lesson in logic goes like this. The person who practices the righteousness grounded in the, in the Torah will necessarily have the trust in Yeshua the Messiah that the Brit Chadashah proclaims. No, it's right. It's the right sentence, all right? Why would they have this trust? Because legalism is the exact opposite of trust. The heresy of legalism, when applied to the Torah, says that anyone who does these things, that is, anyone who mechanically follows the rules for Shabbat, Kashrut, etc., will attain life through them, they will be saved, or will enter the kingdom of Hashem. They will obtain eternal life. No need to trust Hashem, just obey the rules. That's legalism, okay? At least it's couched in the language of the Christians. What is more to the point concerning historic and modern Judaism, however, is the heresy of ethnicity, that is, being born Jewish or following after conversion, which supposedly automatically grant, guarantees the Jewish person a place at the table with Avraham. Now, the problem with these simplistic ladders to heaven is that such legalism conveniently ignores the rule that trust must underlie all rule following which Hashem finds acceptable. But trust necessarily converts mere rule following into something altogether different. In fact, into its opposite, genuine faithfulness to Hashem. Therefore, legalistic observance to Torah commands is actually disobedience to the Torah. Moreover, works of law, which was the requirement of the Gentile to convert to Judaism, as regulated by the prevailing halakha of the Judaisms of the first century, is also disobedience to the Torah. Now I went on to tell this rabbi, as a Jew who follows the Torah as given him by 
uh, uh, through Moshe Rabinu. I challenge you once again, legalism, that is legalistic obedience to Torah commands or reliance upon one's ethnic status, is disobedience to the Torah. One could be obeying every single mitzvah except by assumption the mitzvah of trust. But if these things are being done without heartfelt trust of the God who is there, the only God there is, the God who sent his son Yeshua to be the atonement for sin, then all this outward obedience, quote-unquote, is hateful to Hashem. You can read Isaiah 1.14. And the person doing it, the legalist, lives under a curse. Why? Because he's not doing everything written in the scroll of the Torah. Read Devarim 27, verse 26. Keeping the commandments will not save a person. Being born Jewish or converting to Judaism will not guarantee a person a place in the world to come. Here's my conclusion to what I was writing to the comment to the rabbi there. Now here's the sad truth. The evidence that non-Messianic Jews, that is to say, your anti-missionaries, have not submitted themselves to Hashem's way of making people righteous, which itself shows that their zeal for Hashem is not based on correct understanding, is that they have not grasped the central point of the Torah and acted on it. Had they seen that trust in Hashem, as opposed to self-identification, legalism, and or mechanical obedience to the rules, is the route to the righteousness which the Torah itself not only requires but offers, then they would see that, quote, the goal at which the Torah aims is acknowledging and trusting in the Messiah who offers on the ground of this trusting the very righteousness they are seeking they would see that the righteousness which the Torah offers is offered through him and only through him. They would also see that he offers it to everyone who trusts to them and to the Goyim as well. End quote. That's what I had to say to that uh, non-Messianic rabbi back then. What I also want to let you know is that the commentary to Le- that Leviticus passage there, Leviticus 18 verse um, five is common um, in um, in rabbinic circles today. Let me turn, in fact, to my own commentary to um, Galatians. There, let me just pull it up right off of our website. This is from Exegeting Galatians, right off of the website. Let me turn to page. Let me look for it here. Um, let's see. Leviticus 18, verse 5. What happens is in Galatians... uh, Let me just turn to Galatians in my Bible here. In Galatians chapter um, 3, at verse 10, Paul writes, quote, For everyone who depends on... I've I've whited it out in David Stern version. I apologize. Let me look it up. um, uh, Let's look it up in the KJV. Make sure I haven't whited it out there as well. Galatians chapter 3 and verse... um, I'm sorry. Verse 3 and verse 11. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Uh, And then verse 12. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Now, of course... Um, Paul's quoting from Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. So in my commentary to Galatians here, let me turn to what I had to write there. Let me just find it here. It's a lengthy commentary, and so I, 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 I can't find things right away. Chapter 3, 
Here we go. Uh, verse here we go. All right. Uh, this is quoting from my commentary to Galatians. Um, this is not in my commentary to Parashat Achaimot. So this is a treat for those of you listening to the comment to the uh, uh, podcast. Um, verse eleven. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. End quote. Here's my comment. Shaul now states emphatically that no one is justified before God by the law. A statement that can only mean that quote no one is justified before God by submission to a man-made ceremony as postulated by the prevailing halakha of the first century Judaism. End quote. Alternately, Shaul's statement is a teaching against any mistaken notions that the Torah in and of itself automatically granted covenant status to the individual participant. Again, Paul uses a conjunction, the Greek word because, which is oti, as a clarifier to further the truth that would-be covenant members do not walk into Torah submission to gain covenant status. Rather, submission to God's Torah is proof of a commitment already made on the part of of an existing covenant member. Read the verse again. Quote, because the righteous will live by faith. Because. Hoti. Alright. Verse 12 goes on to read. Quote, the law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Now, here's my comment. Here, the writer of, um, I'm sorry, the quote is from Leviticus 18.5. A verse that Shaul will eventually go on to use again in Romans 10.5. In a similar discussion about covenant membership, I might add. The context of the passage in Leviticus warrants careful study. Let me just read Leviticus um, 18, verses 1 through 5. Okay, you ready? Quote, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live, and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my degrees. My decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws, for the man who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. End quote. Now, here, the writer Moshe describes the lifestyle of an existing covenant member as characterized by obeying the laws spelled out by the Torah. Do you see that there? Because they are covenant members, God expects them to live a certain way. It's not that God is saying, live this way so that you can become covenant members. They are already covenant members. Therefore, they are expected to live a certain way. Paul refers to such a position as clearly described in the previous verse. In other words, Paul expects his readers and opponents alike to come to the same conclusion as he, which is this, all right? Genu- and this is this, this what I'm about to read for you is basically a summary of what I stated to the non-Messianic rabbi, all right? Genuine Torah submission does not precede genuine faith. Genuine Torah submission is the natural expected result of genuine faith. Stated another way, genuine and lasting obedience flows from the heart that has been circumcised by the Spirit of God Himself. The order of procession is vitally important for Paul's argument. Okay, Faith comes first. Obedience follows faith. Such a processional order is also implied in the historical order to which the covenants in question were given. Namely, the Avrahamic covenant, typified by faith, preceded the Mosaic covenant, typified by obedience. Do you see that? By comparison, the influencers of Paul's day had the sequence reversed, suggesting that faith came as a result of following after the teachings of Torah, as indicated by their preoccupation with the ritual 
of circumcision. All right. So let's go back to my commentary to Parsha Achrei Mot and um, draw some conclusions to this entire teaching. All right. Here now are my conclusions to uh, what we've been studying in parts A, B, C, and now in part D here, the Parshat Achrimot. The animal sacrifices conveyed both a temporal and an eternal message to the participants. The blood of bulls and goats is the shadow. Yeshua is the type. Okay, So the standard missionary position that says that the animal saved the person in the Old Testament is wrong. The standard anti-missionary position that says that prayer, sacrifice, um, um, I'm sorry, prayer, repentance, and good deeds uh, offered atonement is also wrong. Okay? The blood of bulls and goats is the shadow. Yeshua is the type. Before we become so quick to look down on God's temporal shadows, this is a challenge to the missionaries, let's look at what the sacrificial system of those days could accomplish. Again, in Psalm chapters 32 and 51, we see the heart of a man, who's David, obviously, who genuinely experienced the forgiveness of Hashem. And I already read this, but in Psalm 32, verse 1, David stated that the man whose sin is covered is blessed. In the Hebrew, covered, the Hebrew word for covered there is kasa. In verse 5, he clearly states that his acknowledgement of his sin brought about true forgiveness from Hashem. Because of unmerited favor, this man, David, could re, uh, could rejoice in the mercies of Hashem. Read verse 10 and 11 there. Okay. Also in, in uh, Psalm 51, uh, which was written by David, but this time written after he committed the gross sin with uh, Bathsheba, the mother of Melech Shlomo, King Solomon. In this passage, in Psalm 51, we again see a man who, knowing the true goal of the Torah, which was salvation of his eternal soul through the promised one to come, sought the genuine forgiveness of his maker. Let's read the passage. Let's read Psalm 51, verses 16 through 19, okay? Verses 16 through 19 of the psalm, expl- well, I'm not going to read the psalm, but let me just summarize them. They explain to us readers that a heart given to genuine trusting faithfulness. The very same heart required of us today, I might add, is what rendered the sacrifices of the Tanakh effective. Simply performing the rituals perfunctorily did not please our heavenly Abba. You can read verse 16 and 17. Rather, and we must understand this, we must put this truth down into our hearts, okay? It was a heart broken in genuine submission to the Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God, that moved Hashem to forgiveness. This same heart gave the sacrifices validity. Read verse 19 of that passage, okay? Bringing the animals to God's temple and then walking away without any faith or love for God or without any um, desire to repent didn't do anything. It's what I call a waste of a good animal. God can see the heart. And if you bring the animal without any repentance, God does not obligate it to, to forgive you. Conversely, the animals in and of themselves did not afford any type of forgiveness um, without, um, without the validity of Yeshua's sacrifice uh, to which they pointed. So you have to ask yourself the question, since we know that Jesus was the goal of the sacrifices, did David as of yet know the name of his future descendant, Yeshua? When he brought the sacrifices to the tabernacle, did he know Jesus' name? Well, 
The text is silent. We have no evidence to support that he explicitly knew the name Yeshua. What we what 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 we can be sure of is this: David did know that through Moshe, the Torah promised that one day a prophet, capital P, would arise and that the people were to obey him. You can read that in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 19. Surely David had access to these passages. What David also knew was that a um, these passages, um, well, let me put it this way. This passage, coupled with, with the whole bulk of the sacrificial system, surely gave David a glimpse of the intended function and nature of the Torah, the goal, in that these antitypes, these animals, pointed towards the day when the corporate sins of all Israel would be forgiven, never again to be brought to Hashem's mind. This, of course, is the day spoken about in Yirmiyahu 31-34, which reads, quote, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more, end quote. That's from the King James Version. Now we read this passage in Jeremiah where it says, I'll forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin. And sometimes we missionaries forget. This is a New Testament feature, people. Read Hebrews 8, verse 12, which is actually quoting the Jeremiah passage. I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. The writer of Hebrews brings this passage from the Tanakh into his letter to um, show that uh, this is God's intent. This is God's intention. According to the book of Hebrews, the sacrifices of David's day could cleanse the flesh. That's what it says explicitly. We're going to read it here in a moment. But they could not cleanse the conscience. That is to say, I understand Hebrews to be teaching that the that only the eternal blood of a sinless sacrifice can regenerate the mind of an individual. Okay. By comparison, the blood of bulls and goats focused on the external. This is a good thing. Good versus better, not bad versus good. Okay, let's get our terminology straight. The animals could cleanse the flesh. That's good. Yeshua's blood cleansed the conscience. That's better. It's not that the animals cleanse the flesh. That's bad. And yet Yeshua cleanses the, the conscience. That's good. That's not the way it works. It's good versus better, not bad versus good. Let's read the quote from Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 and 14 from the KJV. Quote, For the, if the blood of bulls and goats and of the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify it to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? End quote. Notice that the writer to Hebrews does um, confess, or he does agree with my position, I really should say I agree with his position, obviously, right? Uh, since he wrote first. Um, the position being stated is that the sprinkling and the blood of the bulls and goats sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh. That's exactly what I've been saying all along throughout my commentary. Blood of animals applies to the flesh. Hmm. Moreover, the writer of Hebrews makes his point explicit in this additional passage in chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, this time out of the New International Version. Quote, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. I might add that the word only there is not in the Greek, if I'm correct. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeatedly, endlessly, repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. 
But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Quote. Now again, the only way to understand this passage correctly is to know that the sacrifices being spoken of in the animal sense refer to um, cleansing of the outward, whereas the sacrifice of Yeshua serves to cleanse the, the uh, conscience of the individual. So when it says in that last clause, but those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins, it means of the flesh. And then it says, because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, it means in the spirit or in the inner. Okay, Animals apply to the outward. Yeshua applies towards the inward. Therefore, the blood of bulls and goats were not designed to cleanse the conscience. So when it says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, it does not mean all sins. It means sins of the conscience. I would paraphrase it by saying, because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins of the conscience, because they are not designed to take away sins of the conscience. Only the blood of Yeshua was designed to cleanse the conscience. Okay, With that understanding, we can read the verse and understand that Yeshua and his sacrifices, I'm sorry, the Yeshua and the sacrifices do not contradict one another, they complement one another. Please don't misunderstand. The Old Testament saints were not quote-unquote saved by a different system than the one in which we rely on, okay? That is another mistaken notion that is engineered in the standard missionary camps, a.k.a. Christianity. Not across the board. I know not all Christians listening to my podcast would say, well, R.E.L., I don't believe that. Many Christians listening to my podcast would would agree with my position that the Old Testament saints were not saved by a different system than the one in which we rely on. But it's unfortunate that many Christians still believe this position. All right, Somehow they think that the animals offered a salvation. If they were, okay, let's just entertain that notion for a moment. If they were saved by the animals themselves, and then only to have Jesus save us the way now, the way he does now, then this would suggest that there were really two separate ways under righteousness, a theory which we know cannot be true, right? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. That means no one, both past, present, or future. The animals simply did not save people, okay? Tim Haig's conclusion is fitting for our study. Quote, the older idea that atonement was only a temporary fix for sins for those who lived in the time before the coming of our Messiah must be abandoned. The idea of atonement as portrayed in the scriptures encompasses both a temporal aspect as well as an eternal one. End quote. That's again from Tim Haig's commentary, The Meaning of Kafar at TorahResource.com. To be sure, Yeshua, again, states explicitly that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man can come to the Father except through him. We must allow that verse to be applied to every person who has ever lived on the face of planet Earth. Let me just state it this way in a kind of a concluding fashion. The sacrifices performed with a genuine heart of repentance afforded real-life forgiveness, but only to the purification of the flesh. However, the mortal blood of the animals in and of themselves and by themselves could not even take away sin. Only the eternal blood of the perfect sacrifice to which the animals pointed could purify both flesh and soul. Thus you could say that the blood of the animals moved, as it were, the sin from the body of the person to the mercy seat, the altar, where God would in fact grant genuine atonement or washing of sins of the flesh because of the reality of the heavenly altar. When I use the word moved there, it's a little peculiar. What I mean is that the the altar seems to have this kind of, um, uh, how should I put it, a, uh, um, 
a way in which to attract blood. The blood is splashed on the altar. By design, God says splash the blood on the altar, and if you dash it anywhere else, then you're in trouble. They were not allowed to um, ingest blood, obviously, and they were not allowed to offer the blood sacrificially at any other spot except the place where God designated, namely the altar where the priests officiated. So we could say that the altar was designed to receive the blood. Okay, And so when the um, person brought their korban to the priest or to the altar, then they were symbolically saying, here with this animal and with this blood, my sin goes from me to the altar. That's what I mean by the term, the, um, the blood of the animals moved, as it were, the sin. The, 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 um, the, I'm talking about substitutionary atonement when I use the word moved. It moves from us to the altar where God's um, atonement was granted. Alternately, we could say the blood of the animals washed or wiped clean the holy place where God manifestly dwelt. The objective faith of the individual bringing the korban, uh, the korban still remained dependent upon God's promised word to come, namely Yeshua himself. Yet, as he brought his animal, his obedience was demonstrated by adherence to explicit Torah commands where sacrifices were concerned. It's not faith versus obedience. It's faith and obedience. If you had faith in Yeshua, then you obediently brought the animals. It's not that since I have faith, now I don't have to bring the animals. That's not the way it worked, okay? Your faith in God is vindicated by your obedience to God. It's that simple. What is more, the salvation of the eternal soul of an individual was always dependent upon a circumcised heart, exactly as it is today. The thrust of this week's commentary has been presented in an effort to educate the two camps, the missionaries and the anti-missionaries, the Jews and the Gentile Christians. Many Messianics, as well as non-Messianic Jews, still struggle with the intended meaning of, quote, what it means to be a new creation and Messiah, walking out his Torah in our lives, end quote. Moreover, many non-Jewish Christians struggle with this issue as well. By default, I might say, the world does not struggle with these issues since it has not accepted Hashem on his grounds in the first place. And since we're talking about Yom Kippur, and much of this commentary is going to be repeated in my, um, in my uh, notes to Yom Kippur when I get to them, while my heart does reach out to non-Jewish believers with these important instructions concerning the Torah of Hashem, in other words, Christians, it is my desire to make a heartfelt plea to the Jewish community to consider accepting Hashem on His terms alone. You know what I mean? This is our second lesson in Torah logic. All right, here it goes. Quote, if Hashem has renewed the terms of His, of, of his original covenant, we as partners must agree with his improved establishment, especially since it was faithlessness on our part that necessitated the renewal. Apart from being superior to the sacrificial system because of its lasting impact, I must teach the Jewish people today that Yeshua's atonement also brought about the power to maintain a change of of heart, and that's because of the down payment of the Holy Spirit that he promised. To be sure, the famous passage quoted from Jeremiah contains in it a promise from Hashem to do what? To put the Torah in the inward parts of the people, in essence, on the heart. 
What this means is a change in the spiritual makeup of the individual, a softened heart, a circumcised heart, a change that transforms the sinner into the status of righteous heir. And now, because of Yeshua's death, Hashem no longer considers death as our wage. Read Romans 8 verse 1. In fact, even if not corporately, because the Jeremiah passage is a corporate verse, speaking of corporate Israel on the day that they corporately accept Yeshua, even if not corporately, each individual Jewish person can now proclaim, quote, Our Yom Kippur has come. Our final day of atonement has already arrived. Our effectual sacrifice has been offered once and for all. Amen. Amen. The closing blessing is as follows. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher natan lanu Torah temet vechaye olam nata batochinu. Baruch atah Adonai notein haTorah. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. You have given us your Torah of truth and have planted everlasting life within our midst. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. And have a wonderful Sabbath to you all. That concludes our show for today. Remember, because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been, and always will be. My name is Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song was produced and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. Thank you.